This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, as Saskatchewan moves to reopen their economy in their province, how long will it take for BC to follow suit? In BC, BC will have it the least worst of any province. Scientists here in BC are going to be part of a new research project that will study how people's genetics affect their response to COVID-19. Certainly, we've been very interested over the years in, in, in obviously how our genome affects Um, Our genes affect the way that we may be predisposed to certain diseases, for instance. And a new survey from Insights West has shown that we are all struggling a little bit right now because of the chaos of COVID-19. For the most part, British Columbians are doing okay, but we've got about 26% who say they're not coping well at an overall level. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, it looks like the first province that might get out of the gate and start reopening things could be Saskatchewan. Now, yesterday, that province announced a move to reopen its economy. Now, that could have national implications and force many other provinces to also announce their plans. I know they are being worked on here in BC. Our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, David. Morning, Sim. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Uh, you could be golfing in Saskatchewan in the middle of May, weather permitting, of course. The only problem is there's still a lot of interprovincial trade or sort of travel restrictions. Uh, people really don't want anybody crossing provincial borders except for essential service. But yeah, golf in the middle of May, uh, Saskatchewan residents in June, uh, boating, uh, fishing. Some retailers will open in the middle of June. Uh, but even still, this is a five-phase plan that Saskatchewan announced yesterday, and this plan is developed with public health authorities. Even at the end of this five-phase plan, uh, there's still going to be no gatherings allowed of big crowds, so no, say, CFL games, for example, and there will still be restrictions on people visiting long-term care facilities and retirement homes. And I guess the theme here is it's not returning to normal, it's moving forward to a new normal, and that's what we may see right across the country. One other thing, too, that to point out, Saskatchewan can do this. One reason they can do this, very good testing capacity. They've been among the best in the country, provincial-wise, uh, testing at about 220 per 10,000 people right now. And that's, uh, that's one of the reasons they're able to proceed with this plan, great testing capacity. Do you think this then puts pressure on other provinces to also reopen? I think so. Uh, certainly, Andrew Shear, the conservative leader who happens to be from Saskatchewan, uh, was asking the federal government yesterday, listen, we need a plan to coordinate this. If you know your Saskatchewan, Alberta geography, there's a city right in the north uh, between the two, a Lloydminster, Saskatchewan, and mm-hmm. half the town is in Saskatchewan, half's in Alberta. So what do you do? How do you patrol that? Interprovincial uh, travel is going to be an issue. How do we, we work on that? And then there's issues like uh, personal protective gear for businesses that are opening. If a business opens in Saskatchewan and now business owners there in, say, a sporting goods shop need PPE, how does that affect the supplies of PPE that might be needed for healthcare workers in BC or in Manitoba? So all those things require, I think, some federal coordination. And the prime minister is going to talk to the premiers about that today, I think. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, we know that all provinces are kind of struggling right now to balance those health concerns with concerns about the economy. Uh, We heard that economists at TD Bank put out their latest forecast for some of these provincial economies. Grim in some, not so grim in other places. 
Yeah, and BC is one of those not-so-grim places, so let me run the numbers by you. The national economy is going to shrink this year by a whopping amount, something along the lines of 7.5%. That's the national economy. and uh, it, But that will be followed by growth of 7.3%. Now, in a normal year, we see growth of 2% is good, 3% is fantastic. So just to put that in perspective... In B.C., B.C. will have it the least worst of any province. B.C. was doing great before the economy, before we hit this thing. Uh, but B.C.'s economy likely to shrink this year by 6%, and this is according to TD, and then it will grow by 7.6% next year. Unemployment in B.C. was a country-leading low at 4.7% through most of 2019. It's going to almost double up to 8.3% this year and then drop back down to 5.2%. Mm. One of the things that, Simi, that economists want to know about is, or, or, or are measuring is, we've been talking about a V-shaped recovery, so we have a rapid drop and then a rapid bounce back, so there's not much time down at the bottom. And econ economists right now are worried we'll have a U-shaped uh, sort of situation, so a drop and then a prolonged period on the bottom of the U where it's lousy, and then a recovery. And this is one of the reasons why Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, and others want to get people back to work, to get a V-shaped situation going, avoid a U-shaped uh, uh, situation. And, uh, and that, would be, that would be the way things, I assume, everybody would like to see in, right. in B.C., in Alberta, Saskatchewan, right across the country. Absolutely. David, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. Have a good day. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. And also, of course, on the federal scene, we'll be hearing from Prime Minister Trudeau uh, at the usual time. At about 8.15 this morning, we will have that live for you. And as I was talking about with Gord, today there is expected to be uh, rent relief announced for businesses across the country. And I know many businesses out there have been waiting, uh, very, very, very badly waiting to hear more about that. So we'll hear it this morning, hopefully, and have, we'll have details for you right here. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's a community on our doorstep here in Metro Vancouver that has been named the safest place in America to be during this pandemic. Now, can you guess where that is? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer decided to take a look at this. She explores the past and present of that little beach town on the tip of the Tawasin Peninsula known as Point Roberts. In the COVID-19 pandemic, where is the safest place to be? Well, if you're an American, then the safest place in your country is kinda in our country. Point Roberts. The community of 1,300 or so people on the southernmost tip of the Tawasin Peninsula is technically south of the 49th parallel, but it's only accessible by land if you drive 40 kilometers or so through Canada. The little community has been receiving international press after being dubbed the safest place in America to be during the pandemic. In The Guardian, a resident told reporters, because our borders are shut, we're like an island. Hey, it makes sense. The border closure between Canada and the U.S. applies to Point Roberts as well. Now, on a typical weekend, they may get around 2,000 cars that cross over. Now, they're seeing maybe 100, and it's for essential travel only. But how is it that this 12-square-kilometer piece of land ended up as U.S. territory? I mean, yeah, it is technically south of the 49th parallel, but so is the bottom chunk of Vancouver Island, including Victoria. Victoria. 
the human story of this area, of course, begins with the First Nations people. The oldest evidence of the Tawasan First Nations in this area dates back to the year 2260 BCE. They called Point Roberts Teltunum, but the Cowichan, Saanich, Semiamu, they all fished in these waters and used this spot for summer camps. Europeans first set eyes on it in 1791. In fact, at first, they thought it was an island. It was the Spanish that first spotted it. Then, a year later, British captain George Vancouver sailed into the bay. Captain Vancouver named it Point Roberts after his friend Henry Roberts, who was another officer in the Royal Navy. Over the next few decades, a territorial dispute brewed between the Americans and the British in what would later be British Columbia. The area in dispute was namely the Columbia District, a fur trading district in the Pacific Northwest. Some of this territory was overlapping with Oregon County. Now, the Americans, they wanted to claim all land up to the 45th parallel. So basically, as far north as Terrace. They even had a slogan, 5440 or fight. But their focus was pulled away by the Mexican-American War in April 1846. The Americans had to consider, did they want to fight two wars on two separate fronts? And did they want to potentially go to war with England again? So the line was drawn at the 49th parallel. The Oregon Treaty was signed on June 15, 1846. This line would become the Canada-US border. The British negotiated that Vancouver Island would be a part of their territory, hence why the border gets kind of funky around the San Juan Islands, which is actually a whole other story in itself. If you've ever heard of the Pig War, then you know what I mean. But what about Point Roberts, this tiny portion of land that is technically below the 49th parallel, but only accessible through Canada? Well, in short, it seems that they sort of overlooked it. It wasn't until later when the Boundary Commission surveyed the land that they realized this small tip of the Tawasan Peninsula dipped below the 49th parallel. It didn't come up in the negotiations. And so Point Roberts became a part of America. Over the years, there has been plenty of talk, mostly informal, about Point Roberts joining Canada. The issue was even raised again in January of 2020. At just 1,200 hectares, Point Roberts, Washington is a small town, and it's detached from the rest of the United States, separated by a border and accessible by driving through Canada. But in the future, could Point Roberts become part of Canada? I'm proposing a vote in the November 2020 election. Do you the voters of Point Roberts, do the voters of Whatcom County wish to enter into consultations with the government of Canada and the United States to discuss the purchase of Point Roberts by Canada? Dual citizen John Lesso thinks it's time the border is gone, pointing to the dozens of businesses that have closed in recent years. You have access to medical care for the thousand or so people in Point Roberts. You would have schools. You would no longer have to bust your school children from Point Roberts across the Point Roberts border through the international border and back. That's, that's crazy. But how do residents of Point Roberts feel about the idea of joining Canada? I wish Canada would take it over. Our property values would go through the roof like the rest of Vancouver. would love to be part of Canada. It helped my property values, but 
I kind of like it the way it is. Lasso says he hopes to gain support in the coming months when he launches a petition. Catherine Urquhart, Global News, Point Roberts, Washington. However, had Point Roberts become part of Canada, then it probably would not be one of the safest places to be right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. It certainly gained the title of the safest place to be in America for a reason. With the border closed to non-essential travel, Point Roberts has essentially become an island. Water on three sides and a restricted border on the fourth. But that doesn't mean that Point Roberts doesn't have a pandemic plan. So we're talking this morning about what is happening in the community of Point Roberts. It's been named by the international press as the safest place in America to be during the COVID-19 pandemic. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to frontline workers and people who live there about how that community is coping. In general, Point Roberts is a very quiet community, small hometown for our residents and a place to come and relax and enjoy life outside of large municipalities. That's Christopher Carlton, Fire Chief of Whatcom County Fire District 5 of the Point Roberts Fire Department located in Point Roberts, Washington. Compared to last year, our economics wouldn't be in the position like everybody else's across your country and also mine. And we would definitely be having much more traffic, people coming down and opening up their summer homes, uh, getting ready to spend the summer months with us. Point Roberts is full of cabins and summer homes. If you're from Metro Vancouver, then you probably know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody who has a summer home at Point Roberts. It has lovely beaches and a big boat marina, not to mention those incredible ocean views. Absolutely, there's beautiful places all over Washington State. It's an incredible area to be, uh, just in general. And Point Roberts being up on the Canadian border, uh, having access to Vancouver, B.C. We're technically maybe 40 minutes outside of downtown Vancouver. And within our boundaries of five square miles, uh, below the 49th parallel, we have three sides of water. And it's, it's really an incredible community, a place to call home. Yes, Point Roberts is a nice place, but like I said, as well as it seems protected from exposure to the virus, Point Roberts still has a pandemic plan. Well, the fire department uh, is offering COVID testing to our community residents. They don't have to be symptomatic. Uh, they can be asymptomatic. So I am definitely cautiously optimistic when it comes to Point Roberts. People can still gain access by boat and by airplane into our community uh, from the states without crossing into Canada or having to go through the uh, checks and balances at the uh, custom points of entry, both for Canadian and U.S. So, uh, you know, the community um, at large, we're doing incredibly well. Everybody's enjoying the testing and very thankful for the testing because without this testing being offered, the majority of my community I would not be able to transit down to the main part of the county to gain this testing somewhere else. So due to our geographical location, that's why the fire department decided to uh, take this on for our community. Also working with our local nurse practitioner and physician assistant to conduct these testings. So to find out a bit more about the testing, I called up the local medical clinic. Good morning, Point Robert Supertrack Clinic. Chevet speaking. Can you hold for a moment, please? 
This is Deb. How can I help you? That's Deb Shields. She's the physician's assistant. And she told me that so far, no cases of COVID-19 in Point Roberts. As of right now, we haven't seen anybody that was specifically concerned about having COVID-19. And our local fire department has been doing testing every weekend. They obtained a number of test kits. So people that do have a concern or just want to be tested to make certain that they have not been exposed can come in and be tested. It's actually not into the clinic. It's done in our parking lot with tents and people stay in their car and things like that. She said that protocol that was adopted early on has helped. The clinic here has had protocol since the beginning. Basically, we audit everybody on the phone before they ever get here. The runny nose, cough, sneezing, fever, fatigue, sore throat, all of that kind of stuff. And then COVID-specific symptoms. And if all of those things are negative, then we can see them in the clinic in person. If they're positive, we can do a telephone assessment or telephone visit. And then, obviously, if they were in respiratory distress, they'd be calling 911 and our fire department's all set up to handle that as well. But if there was a serious case in this isolated community, then what would happen? The closest hospital is in Canada, so how would they be transported? By ambulance or by airlift, depending on their status. The fire department, Christopher Carlton, who's been all over the news, (laughs) who's our fire chief, has got a protocol in place for that. Many people who live here on the point have airlift insurance. They pay for it annually, just in the event that they would have to be, you know, taken down emergently. But thankfully, that's just a hypothetical situation for now. Point Roberts remains, anecdotally, the safest place in America to be during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's Fire Chief Carlton again. It's something for us to be you know, proud of at this point, because I do believe my community is doing everything we can to protect ourselves and uh, we're doing the best we can. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. So fascinating. So that's a look at how Point Roberts is coping during this COVID-19 pandemic, given that all of their access routes are kind of cut off right now. Must feel quite isolated down there. A lot of people I know in South Delta go down to Point Roberts, well, normally would go down to Point Roberts all the time, pick up a few groceries, get some gas, None of that is happening right now, so the economy must also be suffering in Point Roberts as well. This is Mornings with Simi. In a little over half an hour, we will be hearing from Prime Minister Trudeau, as we usually do every day at around that time. Uh, yesterday, he talked about providing money to Canada's research community, uh, more than a billion dollars at this point, to find and to make progress, essentially, against COVID-19, but to do so right here in Canada. Well, scientists in BC are going to be a part of that, uh, as a new research project is going to study how people's genetics affect their response to COVID-19. It's part of a broader effort, actually, to sequence the genomes of 10,000 Canadians who have all been affected by this particular coronavirus. For more on this, we are joined by Dr. Stephen Jones. He is from the Genome Sciences Centre, the co-director and head of bioinformatics at BC Cancer. Dr. Jones, thank you for joining us. Uh, Good morning. How long has this work actually been going on? Is this something that just started when we first heard about the virus? Um, 
Well, I mean, we, we've been working in this field, um, you know, for quite some time. Um, the Genome Sciences Center was the group, the team who, who discovered that SARS, for instance, in 2003 was a coronavirus. Um, and, and we were first to sequence the genome then. Certainly, we've been very interested over the years in, in, in obviously how our genome affects, um, how our genes affect the way that we may be predisposed to certain diseases, for instance. Um, we work at the BC Cancer uh, Agency, um, and really a lot of our work over the years has been um, in understanding um, why, for instance, people get cancer or, or certain people are more predisposed to certain types. Um, we, we can now kind of train um, our equipment and our expertise to ask a similar question um, about COVID-19, which is, um, you know, we know it affects the elderly more and people with, with, with other symptoms, other comorbidities, as they're called. Um, but there are certainly people, young, young people, which are otherwise healthy, um, mm -hmm. who seem to get a very severe infection. And, and what we're trying to understand is why is that? And, and is there a genetic component to why these people are getting um, a much more s severe disease? And of course, in, in, in some cases, sadly, it's fatal. And how far along are we in, in that progress? Well, I mean, we certainly know how to uh, generate uh, the genomic sequence, as we call it, as a human um, at, at, at high throughput. Um, and, and fairly rapidly now, within a couple of days. Um, so really now what we have to do is take um, the patients who've uh, responded uh, poorly to infection, um, maybe compare their genes to people who've done very well, and start to tease apart what are those differences, and, and are there specific differences in specific genes that, that seem to indicate that this person might do um, poorly um, with an infection and maybe some person um, might only have very mild sniffles, for instance. Right. So that would that explain the differences, do you think, that we hear about? Like how some people, as you say, now we're hearing that has to do with your toes or some people feel a different <laughs> symptom than others. Like, all of that, does that have to do with maybe the virus just responds differently to different genes? It, it's going to be all part of a very complex puzzle. Um, you know, in terms of what, what your underlying health might be exactly at the time uh, of, of infection. Um, but, but certainly we, we do think that, that there's going to be a genetic component, um, the extent at which the genes influence how we respond to infection. You know, we're not going to know the extent of that until we actually do um, complete this study. Do all viruses behave like that or is, what's unique about COVID-19? Um, well, I mean, humans don't, don't typically get a lot of coronavirus infections. I mean, certainly we do get infections, um, um, in, influenzas from, from other viruses. Um, it is kind of interesting, you know, that, that, that what this pandemic has shown us is that we have to understand a lot more about that. Um, so I think across the world now, and, you, you know, we're, we're not alone um, in Canada in doing these studies. I, I, I think that these studies are going to tell us a lot more about the genetics of, of, of these kinds of infections um, and, and, and what might make people kind of uh, more susceptible to, uh, you know, a bad outcome. And what is the timeline like then for this work that you're doing? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly going to take us some time to um, generate all the data and, and analyze it. Um, so, you know, we don't know whether it's going to have um, an ability to have an immediate impact in how we manage the current pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, 
certainly we think it it would have um, uh, some potential um, going forward. You know, when we're looking for maybe echoes of of infection, if the infection starts to come back next year, for instance, you know, I think we're going to be much more uh, well armed. You know, in our knowledge of the behaviour of the disease, um, and and certainly give us a lot more. Um, understanding um, for uh, future pandemics, um, you know, if, if there were one, of course, this is a very rare event. Now, Dr. Jones, is the research community now, is it very much kind of an international cooperative thing that's going on in terms of racing to figure something out with COVID-19? Or is a lot of, is there competition going on between research teams? Um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, I mean, even, uh, you know, in British Columbia, um, scientists from all the universities, uh, you know, putting down their their typical uh, research hats and and what they're looking at, and and you know, turning their their head towards how they can apply their skills um, to studying coronavirus. You know, everyone here is 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 is, is working together um, in that goal. There's a large number of international consortia that have been um, set up to. Um, you know, really uh, encourage um, and allow the, the the very rapid sharing of research results. So, so I'm I'm very encouraged in how we're doing that. Certainly, in our study, the goal is to make the data um, available as as soon as possible to the international community. Do you think we're going to get this thing like puzzled out this year? Or are we are we close? Are we putting pieces together? Well, I mean, that's that's what I could say. Is but you know we're certainly now got the means to get those pieces um, and to start to put them together. Um, you know, it's not, these aren't going to be trivial studies, um, but but I think, you know, it's all uh, going in the right direction in terms of, you know, the research funding that, that, that obviously the, the federal government announced um, yesterday, for instance, is going to really help towards that. Well, we hope to talk to you again about that. Dr. Jones, thank you. Great. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Stephen Jones, the Genome Sciences Center co-director and the head of bioinformatics at BC Cancer, talking about this huge cooperative international effort that's being made to figure out COVID-19. And they're using uh, genome uh, mapping to try to see why it is that it makes certain people feel certain symptoms or react differently in different people. And it is a fascinating project and one, of course, that is a race against time at this point as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our anxiety for a moment, shall we? I mean, you can almost feel it out there these days. You go into a grocery store and one too many people in an aisle and you just feel that anxiety ratchet up. And if you think that, as I do, you are not alone. There's a new survey from Insights West out this morning talking about how British Columbians are feeling. Joining us now to talk more about it is Steve Mossop, the president at Insights West. Steve, thanks for being back with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now tell me, how are we feeling? What did you find? Uh, it's a mixed bag, but uh, for the most part, British Columbians are doing okay, but we've got about 26% who say they're not coping well at a overall level. When we get into some of the specifics, though, that's when we get things like anxiety, worry, stress. Uh, those things are all, really off the chart. We've got about 60% saying that they worry more than they did before, uh, about the same number who are more stressed than they were pre-COVID-19, uh, 57% feeling more anxiety. So there's a, some pretty big numbers on the tables here. So what about loneliness? Did you talk about that? 
Loneliness, uh, 43% feeling more lonely. And here's the juxtaposition of those numbers, because we have 43% feeling more lonely. But later on in the survey, we ask, what's the impact on relationships? And we found that for the most part, uh, relationships have improved. So whether it's your spouse, your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your friends, uh, overall, far more people are saying that things have improved in terms of relationships than have uh, gone the other way. Well, I, For example, I, yeah. if we look at spouses, um, and, you know, everybody sort of jokes about this, we're, we're driving each other crazy in the house, but 28% in a partnership say that their relationship has been better as a result versus only 14% who say it's uh, been worse. Well, I could see that makes sense to me, Robert. You're spending a lot of time with this person. This is kind of make or break, right? If you can't spend all these hours in isolation with somebody and still want to be married to them, I think that's probably a good sign for you. <laughs> probably a good thing. Right. And then parents and children, we've got 30% of parents feeling their relationship with their kids is better compared to 8% who say it's worse. Um, and then the relationship with, with parents, 27% say it's better versus uh, a very small number who say it's worse. Okay, so overall, though, it sounds like British Columbians are saying, you know, they're, they're feeling pretty good. They're doing okay. They're doing okay, but still that 26% number is, is quite large. And the brunt of the pain is really felt in different segments. So if you look at the 18 to 34-year-old segment, we have 36% who are saying they're not coping well in this crisis versus only 18% of those who are yeah, 55 plus. Really? So they, is it the younger that you get then, the more worried and stressed you are? Absolutely. And those numbers are really, as I say, quite off the chart. If you look at worry levels between 18 to 34-year-olds, it's 70%, uh, 73% for stress, 67% for anxiety. Mm. Now, have you found that changing at all in the time since all this started? I know that you've been polling during this time. Any difference in the numbers? No, this is the first time we've gone into mental health. Uh, the previous polls when I talked to you last week was around uh, behaviors and activities and changes in financial uh, impact. So this is the first time we've taken a close look at mental health. Okay, so despite all the kind of stories and jokes and things out there about relationships, according to your poll, relationships are doing okay. At least at least uh, half, half or better. <laughs> That's pretty good. We'll take that. That's about the divorce and marriage rate anyway. Steve, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Brian Adams, one of the artists that you'll be hearing from this weekend when Chorus and other major Canadian broadcasters get together for what is being billed as a star-studded, multi-platform benefit, all to support frontline workers fighting COVID-19 right across the country. Now, it's a huge lineup. Like, we're talking Brian Adams, Michael Buble, Celine Dion, Shania Twain. Like, I could go on and on and on, but why should I list them when we can get Bruce Allen to do that for you, who has joined us now? Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I am good, thank you. Listen, you must have been working like crazy on this thing. This, Yeah, I, I didn't put this together. This is put together, I, I think, by the networks, but naturally it comes and falls in a few people's laps. And uh, and uh, so I, I've been really busy trying to get some of this stuff together because I know a lot of these artists and can talk to them and get them on the show and that, so on and so forth. But it's coming together. It's it's, uh, it's a huge undertaking when you throw in TV and you can't get together and sing. You have to do it from different places and houses and wherever people live in apartments. It's very difficult. And I, I, I really get nervous because... I thought some of them haven't been done very well, Simi. But I Ooh. think as we get old, big, uh, not, I mean the other shows, right. as, we, as we get into this bit further, I think these uh, networks learn from other people's mistakes. And I think this has a real shot of being really, really good. Right, because we have seen some other ones. You're right. There was that big, I thought the Rolling Stones did a good job. 
the Rolling Stones did a good job, but you're talking about a seven-hour show. So if yeah. you got to five minutes, good for you, Sammy. I'm glad you had a nice five minutes. You <laughs> could watch the whole seven hours. <laughs> so <laughs> you're, ho- you're hoping to make it all good, right? Not just bits and pieces. Trying, but, you know, uh, another thing we got on our side is we only got 90 minutes. We're going to start with 60, Sammy. They moved it within the last three days uh, because of people, you know, wanted to keep doing it. I mean, the people start coming to you at a certain point. They wanted to, okay, we'll stretch it another 30 minutes. So it's getting on, going on here out the West here at 630 on the various networks. Okay, so how challenging is it? You must have to help out a lot of artists here as well because they're going to be doing this, what, from their homes? Absolutely. So that's why I'm saying that the TV people that can really talk to them now uh, and, 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 and right the wrongs maybe or do the things a little bit better than they did maybe like on the Elton John one, which is very difficult. And I just think, I just think we've improved stuff and I, I'm looking forward to what I hope will be a great show. And, and we've broadened it out too. You can talk about the musicians. They're going to be all there. Like you said, Jan Arden, Alicia Garris, Sarah McLaughlin, you named some others. So then, uh, you know, Getty Lee from Rush, which would be the first time he's been on stage since the death of Neil Perdon, of course, is, is induction into the Hall of Fame. Um, and also these actors like Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds has phoned up wanted to be involved. I know that. And uh, Keith Kiefer Sutherland, Priestley, Howie Mandel, I tried to do it at the top of my head. Then the sports stars, uh, Sidney Crosby, I know Connor McDavid or the hockey players. I know some of the Raptors, a couple of the Raptors, I think Serge Ibaka, Bianca Andreescu, the new golden girl with tennis. So a lot of people are showing up. And then you know these people like Rick Hansen and David Suzuki and Mark Goddard, people like that. So they're coming from all areas. So it's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of tributes done and uh and uh, of course, music uh, uh, too. And I know, I know, music is funny because they were trying to keep the time down to two minutes on the music to get everybody in, and then all of a sudden they slackened up on that a bit. So the songs aren't going to be cut off right at two minutes. So that's it's, good. It's going to be a good night, but they're still working. Believe me, they're working over there. <laughs> I <laughs> bet they are. But is this one of those things where it's 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 more about getting everybody into it because it's easy to phone people up and say, "Do you want to do this?" Because everybody's going to say yes. Yes. And especially when they don't have to fly anywhere, you know, they don't have to go to Toronto to do it. They don't have to go. They're doing it from their home and uh, they, they want to be involved. And there comes a point isn't it, that when everybody starts getting involved, that that's when other people show up. They kind of judge it by, you know, what's how is this going to be put together? And I think, you know, it, there's the people who come off the top. I mean, uh, myself, I got called. I know right out of the box. But I always say, that's my problem. You see, I, what have I got? Brian Adams, he's an A. Michael Bublé, he's a B. Bruce Allen, he's an A. And and uh, John Arden, he's an A. I think they do it alphabetically, and I get the first call every year. And it really starts to bug, bump, bump me out, I tell you. <laughs> oh, it's hard to be as successful as you are, Bruce. Oh, I know it's God. hard. But you know what? I look forward to seeing it, and I know you're going to have a lot of handiwork in there. So listen, thanks so much for telling us about it. You bet, Sammy. Take care. You too. That is Bruce Allen, of course, our super talent manager from right here in Vancouver. And yes, he does have quite a few artists participating in this show. It's called Stronger Together. You'll see it on all chorus platforms, right on every platform, every broadcaster right across the country uh, coming up this weekend. So you've got Brian Adams, Michael Buble, Celine Dion, Shania Twain, Alessia Cara, Jan Arden, Sarah McLaughlin, Bare Naked Ladies, uh, Tessa Virtue, Howie Mandel, Hilly Wickenheiser just go on and on. Ryan Reynolds, as Bruce said there too, on and on and on. They are all going to be there and I'm looking forward to watching it.